And in talking to most of the athletes we were working with who were either ex-pros, semi-pros, wannabe pros, like, you know, high caliber riders, all of them said that mostly they found they were dialing down, not dialing up to stay in that sweet spot. They found that under normal conditions, they would push harder than that 4% sweet spot. And we were actually asking them to back off things a little bit more than they were used to. And that was the most shocking thing. And of course, by backing off things, what ended up happening is they got more flow. And once they dropped into flow, then they would do those harder things with much less fuss and much less drama. So you, they ended up going farther, faster over time, but the daily experience was less, not more. That was Stephen Kotler, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights that they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body, an ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. Hello, and welcome to another show. Uh, when I was a young athlete, I was incredibly up and down in uh, my sport performance, basketball particularly. Track was not too bad, but as a basketball player in high school, I was on fire one game and awful the next. And although I remember reading about getting, quote unquote, in the zone in uh, one of my training books, I had read back at age 15 or 16. I just remember not caring that much about that portion of it. I cared more about what plyometrics should I do and this, that, and the other thing. But the funny thing is, is I was, I had the athleticism part down pat, but I frustrated my coach more than anything with my inconsistency. And if I could go back in time and then reflecting on that whole experience as a coach now, I would have definitely emphasized sports psychology and helping myself get into flow states way more often. Flow states and peak performance have become a much more important part of what I do. 
as an athlete, just how I train. And then as a coach, how I've really scaled my workouts, my warmups, everything athletes are touching in the gym. Uh, and that's just in the physical preparation sector. It, I actually would be really interested to coach team sports with all this in mind, but just trying to lead athletes into an immersive training experience where they can get into more of the zone and flow states and lose track of time and be fully challenged and fully present. I think these are things that we all work on. In my readings of this topic, uh, one man stands out, and that is Stephen Kotler. He is a best-selling author and renowned flow state expert. He's written books such as The Art of Impossible, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, and many others. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into 40 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications. Stephen is the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and not only is Stephen prolific in the writing space, but he has skin in the game in extreme sports themselves, being involved in surfing, downhill mountain biking, skiing, and he's also learned and participated with a number of the world's greatest athletes in this arena. For the podcast today, Stephen is going to talk about neurobiology and flow states as it relates to goal setting, burnout, skill progression, having a fulfilling career, and much more. Whether you are a coach looking to just get an edge and get some ideas with keeping your athletes optimally challenged and engaged throughout training sessions in the course of a season, or you're looking for your own daily habits and routine and goals for yourself in the professional field, these concepts are global and there is a ton of gold in this show that helps us in many levels of human performance, athletes obviously included. I'm excited to get you guys this one. This was an awesome talk. Let's get on to it. Episode 240. Steven, so one of the things I wanted to ask you in kicking this off is what is your favorite extreme sport memory? I know you've written a lot about um, oh just God. like I'm thick, a ton of a favorite yeah. memory. I don't know if I have a favorite memory. God, I, there are so many. I'll tell you the one that came to mind first. There's a couple of I. So my favorite extreme sport memory, actually, I'll th this is a funnier story, is uh, the first time I was in the mountains in Chamonix in, in France, which is, you know, really hardcore territory with professional athletes. I was with early extreme skiers, the Deloriers and the Egans Two, they were two brothers, Rob, Rob and Eric Delorier and, and John and Danny Egan. And they were the early Warren Miller extreme skiing crew. They were part of that crew. And my introduction, we first run, it's supposed to be a warm up lap. That's all we're doing. And the warm up lap turns out to be, over 50 degrees, the steepest thing I've ever skied, really, really, really narrow and terrifying, just absolutely terrifying. And I'm about halfway down and like have just sort of come to the conclusion that I might live through the experience, right? But I literally just, and Eric Delorier comes screaming past me at probably 60 miles an hour. And as he passes by, he goes, look out for the black line and sort of disappear. And I'm like, look out for the black line. Like what the hell is he talking about? Right. And I come around a corner and I see like a couple hundred yards below me, what looks like a black line. And then I just see Eric get to the black line and launch over it and like fly a very long way. And I realized that black line is a crevasse. It's a 25 foot wide 300 foot deep crevasse that's at the bottom of this damn run and it's a mandatory air out and so i have to jump the goddamn thing and i do and land and it's by far the hardest scariest craziest thing i had done up to that point on skis and i i was 
really just about to puke right by the time I, like i got to eric at the bottom and i was like dude i was a little uh gnarly right and he was like oh yeah man that was gnarlier than i thought maybe next time i'll have to buckle my boots and i look down and it's not that his ski boots are just unbuckled it's that they're like the tongues are he's wearing freaking house slippers he's he just did that while not even attached to his skis and it took every single bit of anything i had just to sort of survive and he like he it was literally just like a warm up for him in that he wasn't even like in his skis and that was sort of my welcome to the pros kind of my, where i was like oh shit this is a like i thought i was an expert skier and when i got there and i actually realized how big the gap between me and where the pros actually like it was it was so colossal that's sort of my favorite memory because it was like how i learned how far i had to go like really in a, in a very rude kind of heavy awakening kind of way that falls into my favorite memory category there are a couple others that were that were up there but that that may win i think that's where those one of those things were extreme sports and I guess you call them regular sports or sports where there's not like a, fear, a risk of death or things like that. To me, that is such a, a potential difference maker, right? Like if there's fear of death, that can really it make is a, you... Yeah, I, I, to me, I always say if you can't get seriously injured, it's not really a sport. I don't believe you. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I know a lot of people who play tennis would disagree with me or golf, right? And I'm, and I'm happy for the argument, but in my mind, sport is something where like the, and look, the most common sports injury in the world occurs in basketball. If you were to like list contact sports and what's the most dangerous sport in the world, basketball wins for broken bones above like all the other stuff. So you have to sort of like expand your definition to the, to meet the data. But yeah, I, I do sort of think it's a different game when that's, those are the stakes. Yeah. And I'd like to get into some of the neurochemistry of that. I mean, most people, listening to this probably don't train extreme sport athletes but I, I feel like like if you took that tennis player right and you put like a crevasse in the middle i don't know there's some sort of fear now in that tennis game neurochemically That's, i don't know I, curious it's, what it's interesting because i will tell you so as you know i have a new book out called the art of impossible and it is a book it's lessons learned from people who have gone after capital i impossible that which has never been done and I tell a story in there about my first time I met Laird Hamilton, who back in the 90s, when he first started towing into Jaws, nobody had ever seen anything like it. It was one of the most extreme, you know, big wave surfing for surfing is a thousand year old sport. And progress is pretty slow. And up till 1996, the biggest wave anybody ever surfed is 25 feet. And above that, there were physics papers written about how you can't get into a wave that's over that. And, you know, today, decades later, thanks to Laird and a bunch of other pioneers, Surfers are routinely towing into waves that are 100, 110 feet tall and paddling into 60, 70 foot waves. And Laird was one of the first to do it. And it was such a impossible. And I remember meeting Laird the first time. He was just 31 and I was about 27. And he said something that I think is really relevant here. He said, you know, Stephen, people see me on a on a 50 foot wave and they think, oh, no way, man. I like let, uh, That's impossible. I'll never do that. And he's like, well, okay, maybe, but you're seeing me at like 31 on that 50 foot wave. What you didn't see me is me at three on a three foot wave and four on a four foot wave and five on a five foot wave. And you didn't see me last week on a 49 and a half foot wave. So you look at the 50 foot wave and you think, oh my God, that's impossible. And I think from the inside, yeah, Larry, you're not even pushing that hard. What are you doing? And I think that the view is very different on the inside and the outside, but 
it doesn't actually, the interesting thing about peak performance is it doesn't matter if you're going after capital I and possible or you're trying to improve your tennis game or you're trying to be a little bit better at work. The biology is the same. The tool set is the same. How you get there is the same. Um, how big you want to play and what you want the stakes to be, that's entirely up to you. But the other point is the thing with mortal consequences is mortal consequences are very relative. Every great athlete I know in the experienced sports world, if they're feeling too much fear, if they don't feel like they have it, if they don't feel like it's literally just, oh, I'm not pushing very hard, I'm pushing, but not very hard, they'll back off. That's a sign you go home because everybody learns the hard way in action adventure sports. That's how you go to the hospital, right? When you just try to go through on courage alone, you go to the hospital. So you, that gets, if you have a long career in action sports, that sort of is gone by your, your middle 20s. And like literally injury just weeds out people who think that's the way forward, right? Like they, they end up breaking too many bones and they don't have long careers. Yeah, with the the risk of death too, like you mentioned, I mean, I'd imagine that like attention and salience network in the brain is probably very, it's extremely on point or different than a different sport. Or how, tell I, that's about the that that's, yeah, that's that's the point I was actually trying to make is you would think so, but those athletes, and it depends on the level of the challenge. You know what I mean? Laird is used to surfing waves that are say fifty to seventy feet tall, and suddenly if a wave shows up that's one hundred twenty feet tall. Yeah, gonna catch his attention. But my point is on the inside, nobody is pushing that much harder. Nobody thinks of it as mortal consequence. I mean, yes, everybody knows if you fall, you could die. But on the inside, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like progression in any other sport. It really does. Because when it stops feeling like progression, right? When it starts to feel like, oh wow, this is crazy and these risks are so high, and I could that's when people go home. That's when people are like, okay, not today. This is, I'm, I'm not really wired for this. Sometimes it, you know, sometimes it happens. People get on top of a line in Alaska or something like that and realize they can't get down and it's way bigger than they expected. That happens. But those are the exceptions much more than the rule. I know in the art of impossible, you wrote a lot about goal setting. And so I'm, I'm curious how, for I guess you could call it more normal daily either daily activities or just sports that there's a little bit less going on. Yeah, so it, it yeah. doesn't. It's still because okay. So let's start at the really simple concept, which is, in my opinion, though I, I think the data backs me up, peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That's all that's going on. It is going on no matter that biology doesn't change, and so like the same goal setting biology that's going to help Layer do what he does is going to help any athlete anywhere along the way, because this is how we're biologically wired. So what biology shows is that we are goal-directed machinery, as you probably know, right? And to really put an emphasis on this, essentially, we don't live in reality. We live in a reality that is shaped by two things, our fears and our goals. Those are the two largest filters on perception and on the world we live in. And they're sort of binary. And when I say they're sort of binary, what I mean is, as you probably know, anxiety and curiosity slash excitement are the same neurochemically, the same cocktail. You're talking about a little bit of cortisol and a bunch of norepinephrine and possibly some dopamine depending. Most mammals can't feel anxiety and curiosity or anxiety and excitement at the same time. It's a binary. It flips back and forth. In fact, when they do animal welfare stuff for like cows they're trying to they have to lead cows into a barn because everybody needs to be inoculated 
right? And cows don't like being penned in, put into a line, and that's what has to happen. And it stresses out the cows, which is bad for the cows. So they don't want to do that. So what do they do? They put things up that make the cows curious. Because by being curious, they can't be anxious because <laughs> it, it, it's literally – humans can sort of do both at once, but it really – it's not you, – your goals will overwhelm your fears. They'll win most of the time. Anyways, back to goal setting. What the research shows, what the biology always shows is that there may be more than this, but for sure you need three levels of goals in your life. You need mission – tier level goals, what uh, Peter Diamandis and myself have termed a massively transformative purpose in our book, Fold. Mission level goals, I'm a writer. A mission level goal would be, I want to write books that have a deep impact on the world, right? It's a, it's a process goal. There's no clear, like, how do I know I've won, right? Like, there's no, it's an infinite game. It's not a finite game. I'm not saying I want to win the Nobel Prize in literature. Too many things outside my control, for me to steer my whole life based on that, right? It could be, I could want that, but it's hard, it's hard to steer about it. So mission level goals, then we need what are known as high, hard goals. And if mission level goals are the overarching mission statement, a high, hard goal is like a one to five year step that would lead me to accomplish that high, hard goal, right? So let's put it in athletic terms. The mission level goal could be, I want to be a great runner. High hard goal is I want to run the New York Marathon. I want to run the best Boston Marathon. I want to start running triathlons. I want to run an Ironman, right? Those are high hard goals, one to five years. Then you need clear goals, your daily to-do list. This is your daily action plan. Clear goals are a term that comes out of flow science. They're one of the preconditions that lead to flow. They're a flow trigger technically. And how they work, we can get into that and all that stuff. But the point is that clear goals are... Daily to do to less, they should be set in a very there's a specific order you want to set them to maximize flow and maximize some other stuff. That's a long story. It'll take us 20 minutes to talk about it. So it's in the new book, Art Impossible. You can check it out if you want. But uh those three tiers are usually important and they need to be pointed all in the same direction. So everything needs to align to get the most out of it. But you know, the Benefits are significant. So, for example, properly set high, hard goals. Gary Latham and John Locke, sort of the godfathers of motivation theory and motivation science, did tremendous amounts of research to discover that properly set high, hard goals will increase motivation by 11 to 25%. That's a crazy number. It means if you're working eight-hour days, right, you're going to get two free hours worth of work simply for having the right frame around it. And it's interesting because I have found just as a skier that we set, probably set high hard goals. I will usually get a couple more runs a day out of my body. And I like to leave everything on the hill. I like to go as hard as possible and leave it all out there. But I find that properly set high hard goal will, you know, give me two extra runs, which is a lot of like at, at top levels when you're moving at 60 miles an hour, that's a lot of skiing. That's a lot of energy just for having a properly set goal. You know, if I go into a day and 16 laps are my goal and, you know, I'll usually run out of energy, you know, 14 and I can get to 16 or I get to 18 or 25 or whatever goal I set that day it tends to help that way too. Um, anyways, science of goal setting um, a little bit. I will say one other thing, because there's a bunch of athletes listening and coaches. And so there's clear goals 
seem to function as a flow trigger. So one, when you set them in advance, right, this is my to-do list um, that I'm going to do today. Um, that's one kind of clear goal. There's a second kind that shows up very commonly in athletics where you're at the gym and you've done your three sets of 10 and you're like, you know what? I can get two other reps out of this. So you set a clear goal. Instead of the last set being of 10, it's going to be of 12 and you push towards it. And when you do that, you not only get a little extra motivation, it also seems to drive focus and flow um, and it trains grit. So that's a different kind of goal setting that athletes can use a lot. And we all, you know, as athletes, we all, we know that we, you set like these mini, you know, these mini little goals along the way, cause it helps you perform better along the way. One of the, yeah, one of the things you said, I'd, I'd actually like to dig into, and I know you said that goal setting, the, the goal setting conversation, it really could be a whole show. Um, and I have a few other questions down on the chart that I'd like to get to certainly. Um, but one of the things, but one of the things you just mentioned that, you have the massively transformative purpose and then the high hard goals and then the clear goals. And I think that I've done other podcasts with coaches and a lot of times the talk is more just about on the day. Like here's the clear goals on the day. Here's the process goals. But we don't talk as much about those those um, umbrellas that go beyond like the high. Yeah, let me give you a so – I can't – I wish I could give you this from athletics. But um, Salim Ismail, who's the original uh, executive director of Singularity University where they use – uh, where they basically train companies, uh, organizations to tackle sort of grand global challenges. Doesn't matter. He was doing a study of the hundred fastest growing companies in the world. He wanted to find the hundred fastest growing, most agile um, unicorns in the world, and he found that. And what are their commonalities? And the most startling thing he found is that they all had massively transformative purposes. There was that guy. There was a guiding principle. This was, you know, this is Simon Sinek. Start with why. Also, is to say, to say all these ideas are flying, have been flying around for a while um, because the, the neurobiology of goal setting, it's getting better and better and better. And we're starting to understand, oh, this is exactly what the mechanisms are. This is how they're working, why they're working. And I often think, you know, mission level goals, um, and this is also tricky in coaching. I mean, everybody sort of knows the mission level goal, you know, win a championship, win a championship. Um, but that's also like coaches play for a different mission level goal, right? Their mission level goal is have a long career, right? Win multiple champ. Those are different kind of mission level goals. And everybody knows every, you know, players goals could be their mission level goals are get to the pros. You get through college, get noticed, get to the pro that. So there's misalignment between bigger vision level goals. Thus it's helpful to find one that you can agree on and all move towards. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I was going to ask, um, like when you had said that those high hard goals can give you such a performance boost, my thought is, okay, well, I, I know it's all context dependent, but do we do we hit high hard goals first? Do we look at clear? I mean, because I think most people just jump right to clear goals. But yeah, I don't think I like I with high hard goals. I, I always keep moving towards them, but I I think you want to set it and forget it in a sense. Like you, st- I so I use let me. I use my mission level goals as a filter for my life. So for example, there's basically three, three things like I, I want to, I do in the world, three big things I do in the world. And there's like three things I got to do to support that stuff. Right. Um, so I have a six filters sort of at the top of my life and it's easier actually if I give examples. So my, at a mission level, I write great books, right. 
uh, advanced flow science and, and research, and I'm trying to make the world a better place for animals. And to do all that stuff, there's a friends and family category, right? I got to have good relationships with my friends and my family. Um, I have to hurl myself down mountains and get into flow on a regular basis because it helps everything else. And then there's a bunch of sports stuff that I got to do to keep all that stuff running, right? If an opportunity comes my way and it fits in with those six, I say yes. If it doesn't, it's an immediate no. So it's a first filter. And it allows me and every athlete I know who's serious is short on time. Right. One of the hardest things about like being a serious athlete um, is the, the massive amounts of time involved in it. And by the way, the fact that you're going to have to sleep seven to eight hours a night and you're going to sleep more than other people because you're using more physical energy. Right. And um, those requirements you can't really get around. So you need really strong filters for your life and mission level goals not only tell you where you're going, but tell you where what you're saying no to. And that's really important. Yeah, I, I think that is. I and I for anyone who's worked with athletes enough, it's like you can have all the clear goals in the world, but if you know the athlete is kind of lost when it comes to the more global goals, it you just never end up really truly getting that far. And I like what you said about bringing everyone together to agree on something because people could be in different directions. And I think that yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And the more I've gone through the process, the more I've learned more about the managerial side of working with a team and. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Steven, I, I, you had said a little bit about like as athletes go through their careers. And that was actually one of the first questions I had uh, written on my list is I know in your book, you had talked about um, motivation and drive. And a question I had is how might athletes lose their passion and drive? Or what are some reasons athletes will drop off throughout the career? What are some uh, factors that are, are uh, present in those occurrences? So it's, it's interesting. Um, one, I will say there's a chunk of this question that is outside what the work I actually do, right? So I don't know if I'm the end-all, be-all expert on this answer, and I like to try to stay in my lane. That said, what I do know is that the conditions for burnout in business or in the creative arts or in athletics tend to be roughly the same, right? And... <clears throat> Some of them are built, are sort of baked into athletics because the, the, the number one uh, driver of burnout is, you know, two steps forward, once or one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. So if you have a passive aggressive coach who keeps moving the bar on you, right, you don't know how you're not the biggest driver for humans is meaningful progress toward meaningful goals, right? Like that, that we love. We love the path to mastery. We love, right? We love that. So with athletics, you can be losing, but still moving forward. But if you've got the wrong guy steering the ship or woman steering the ship and they're not, you know, if, if that attitude is wrong, that can cause it. Um, but that's the number one driver of burnout. Um, I will say, this is what we have discovered in just studying burnout in general, which is that if you are sleeping seven, eight hours a night, if you have an active recovery protocol in place, if you are getting regularly regular access to flow and you are not in one of those sort of passive aggressive situations where somebody keeps moving the bar, you're actually making meaningful progress forward someplace you want to go, it is almost impossible to burn out. 
but you start removing those conditions and uh, and you're going to have problems. I would say that the main reason people drop out along the way, if it's not injury, is so flow states have triggers and okay, so let's back up. We get hooked on sports because they produce flow. As a general rule, they're and we tend to excel in the sports that produce the most flow as practitioners, right? And we know, for example, uh, that flow in athletics, so it's a great, great study that was done on uh, incoming high school freshmen. And they asked, what are the major components of, a, of their secondary activity? So not schools, their primary activity, their secondary activity could be they played football, could be they played volleyball, could be they played the tuba and the marching band, whatever it is, that's their secondary activity. So they wanted to know what is the greatest distinguisher of the students who come in with a secondary activity that they love, we're still going to be committed to it four years later when they leave, right? They're still on the football team, the track team, or in, in the band. And it's the amount of flow it produces freshman year. That's the number one, right? That's the, that's the, that's basically all of it. And it's because five neurochemicals that underpin flow among their many performance enhancing functions, they're all reward chemicals. They're great pleasure drugs and flow is the only time you get all five at once, which is why flow is our favorite experience on the planet. And um, so one of the secrets to uh, keeping athletes in their sports is to make sure their sports continue to produce flow for them. Now, that's where things get really complicated because of what's known as the challenge skills balance, which is flow's most important trigger. Everybody listening, I'm sure is familiar with this. Flow follows focus. It shows up when all our attention is in the right here, right now. That's what the triggers do. They drive attention into the present moment. If I were to say this neurobiologically, I would say they do one of three things. They drive dopamine into our system, they drive norepinephrine into our system, or they lower cognitive load, or some combination of those factors. Dopamine and norepinephrine are our predominant focusing chemicals, right? This is pleasure and excitement. And, you know, when it's in our system, we just pay attention automatically to what, what task at hand and cognitive load. So the crap you're thinking about at any one time. And what happens is if I lower cognitive load, it liberates energy, which the brain will then repurpose to pay attention to the task at hand. So all three of these experiences drive flow. Now, the challenge skills balance is the idea that we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. We want to stretch but not snap. And slightly exceeds our skill set means you're outside your comfort zone, but only a little bit, right? If you're too far outside your comfort zone, too much anxiety, you get actually end up with too much norepinephrine and it blocks peak performance. It doesn't, it ends up blocking flow uh, for a variety of neurobiological reasons. The point is that as you progress in sports, when you go from, you know, JV to varsity or into college or into the pro, right? At each level, the challenge skills balance is jumping up, right? Shit just got harder. It just got harder. And where you are versus, especially if you're playing a team sport, right? You basketball, where you are as a high school player, suddenly jumping to college, that whole challenge skill equation. Sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it can radically tilt for somebody. Um, and that's one. So one of the things with a long athletic career is I'm more, I am less interested in a sense in um, 
professional athletes uh, inside, you know, clearly defined brackets. I mean, there are a lot of people on my staff who work directly with those athletes and do that work. I'm more interested in questions of lifetime peak performance and like, how do you, how do you stay in flow as an athlete over, you know, over your entire life? Um, more, much more than, you know, how am I going to compete for the five years between 20 and 25? And I'm like, okay, well, that's great. And there's a lot of people who, who do that work and, and we do some of it as well. But I, you know, I spend a great deal of time with athletes on the back end of their, there's a long back end to that career, no matter how great you were and how do you thrive in those environments? How do you not burn out? How do you stay committed as an athlete? Those are questions that are really interesting to me. Um, personally, so I spent a little bit more time there. I started my career in strength and conditioning having a very manufactured approach to training. You're going to do this many sets and reps of this exercise. You're going to do it like this. You're going to do this movement prep first and everything with that. And over eight years of time as a full-time strength coach, I slowly shifted into a more athlete-centered organic approach where athletes had more options on how to do things. They could express themselves. They could move with flow. We did more gymnastics. We did more games. We did more organic learning. I will never turn back on that. Along the same lines, I've gotten into a more organic approach of supplementation, moving away from caffeine-heavy pre-workouts into herbs such as shiliagit, which you may have heard mentioned by guests on this show in the past as being awesome for strength and vitality. That's why I'm proud to partner with two-time previous guest on this show, Logan Christopher and his company Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out some of the herbs that have led me into becoming a stronger and more vital human being, ones that I use personally, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can get 15% off your order there, as well as get a 365-day money-back guarantee. Again, to get 15% off your order with Lost Empire Herbs and see my top recommended herbs that I use personally, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. All right, let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I've been, you mentioned longevity and I've been thinking that a lot about that myself. I mean, I'm, I'm 37. I don't play team sports uh, or extreme sports for that matter, nearly as often as I would like. A lot of it's just training and a lot of it's just trying to almost reinvent training over the years. Uh, just to the, to even for me to the point where it's like, Hey, here's a set of monkey bars instead of doing pull-ups. It's, it's how can you navigate this and throw pull-ups in and just trying to make it new and exciting and even in that space. And so I, I mean, at the end of the day, I find myself often saying, I'd rather just find a new way to play a game today. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll throw the training in there. It's just trying to feed that engine that wants to learn and explore and come up with something new versus, I mean, in terms of just training, training, I mean, a push-up's a push-up, a pull-up's a pull-up. You can spice it up, but there's not, I don't feel like there's nearly as many things you can do with that versus I'm sure what you do every time you go skiing. So it's, it's interesting, but like skiing is a great example. Um, I ski when I go out skiing. Um, my ski partners are either pros or ex pros and I got to keep up and I'm 53 and I run a company and I write books and I do blah, blah, blah. And so the flow research collective, which is the organization I, I run where we study the neurobiology of peak human performance, we look for what I call multi-tool solutions. I want a solution. I want it that solves multiple problems at once. I always tell people that peak performers are too busy to solve problems one at a time. And if you've only got, if your solution only solves one particular problem, it's a bad solution. Find a better solution. Um, you need multi-tool solutions because you're too busy. So I'll give you an example. I've got dogs. I have to hike my dogs every day. 
So I started realizing, of course, I used the dog hike as ski training, but I started to realize I was like, well, I'm hiking now like 90 minutes and, you know, and I, I need to go farther. And I started introducing weight fests because this is a thing that I automatically had to do and I have to do it anyways. And I, you know, the, a long hike in nature resets the nervous system. There's a, it's a multi-tool solution, does a bunch of stuff. Um, and adding a weight vest in allows me to train legs and core. And um, it's interesting because I, I really doubled down on this during COVID because COVID cut ski season short. And I was really frustrated by that um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and uh, I decided that the only way I could live with myself is if I entered this ski season this year as a better skier than I ended last season. So I had to get, I had to actually improve as a skier in the off season after they closed the resorts um, and how to do that. One of the ways I did this was through weight vests and I got it up to, you know, 90 minute hikes up and down mountains with uh, 30 to 40 pound weight vests on. And I entered the season stronger than I've ever been. And I'm 53 and it's a solution that packed inside of other things that I was already doing. So I think one of the problems is as we get older is sometimes the novel stuff is great, but, we're busy. So I look, I look for things that I'm already doing and how do I take those things and crank them up more? Um, and the, one of the reasons I look at this is this is the second half of the thing I wanted to say to you, not writing this book right now, uh, but I am researching a book on peak human performance, uh, over 50 because there's tremendous amounts of data that says that if you take care of the body, you can actually perform incredibly well into your 80s right now. And we're starting to understand these are the exact levers. And this is not even in getting into like the longevity research and the biohacking stuff and forget everything else. I'm just talking about like, what do we know about the human body and how long can it sustain levels so that we might call peak performance. And it's a lot longer than anybody actually suspected. And we're also start, like bionics is showing up now. Right, like there are strap-on exoskeleton knees that skiers can now use that will allow them to ski at really high levels long, you know, into, into their elderly years for other sports. This stuff is coming at an exponential pace, so we get to be athletes for a lot longer than any other generation, and the data is pretty consistent um, that we can we are capable of that kind of performance. And I and I think we need to sort of change our thinking about, you know, what does it mean? I mean, Tom Brady's being great at this, right? Like, you know, that's, that's, he's a great example, but it's just, he shouldn't be the exception. He should be the rule. Yeah. I, a podcast that literally just went out on this show. Uh, one of the pieces in the show notes was a bunch of elderly Chinese individuals, like in their seventies at a park doing like giant swings on monkey bars and doing all this gymnastic work that you would expect maybe people 30 years younger to be doing. And they were still doing it. I was completely blown away um that was shared to me with me by uh nikolai morris and uh one of the things you said that actually i this is just kind of a general thought maybe more than a question but i feel like it's like if we're becoming more complex as human beings you think about uh, we talk about oh in 40 years is it going to be like cyber sports with people like half human and genetically you know and but i think about in the sense that the more if you had like bionic legs to work with it would almost there's another option for your brain to grow connections and almost have to work faster in a sense uh, it's a random thought, but I, I think about how fast we're expanding our skill set in, in the world of like, extreme sports and things like that. And I don't know, maybe that's an interesting. I wrote, well, I wrote, I did write an article for Slate a while ago uh, on the future of sport that looked at, it was right after uh, 
the first space dive and uh, uh, that Red Bull had done with Felix Baumgarten. And that, you know, that is now progressing as a, as a sport, like space diving is a new thing. And I talked about where, where does this, you know, what's 10 years on, what's 20 years on, et cetera, et cetera. They're interesting, cool questions. Uh, flow is a general rule is the secret weapon uh, when it comes to keeping up with the technology, at least for a while, um, because in flow, um, it's mostly neurochemical that's doing this part of the equation. There's other things going on, but uh, the neurochemicals involve surround, surround the brain's information processing machinery. So when we're in flow, we take in more information per second. We find faster connections between it and other information. And uh, and by the way, fast muscle response goes up and things like that as, as well. So it seems to be our secret weapon for keeping pace with the technology up to some limit, right? But I don't think we've hit that limit yet. Yeah, I'm sure there is some bar that's like, okay, like, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's physical limits on how fast, right, the brain can actually process information. And there's not there are different, there's probably different limits on the technology, um, would be my guess. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where that does end up going. Uh, I I want to go back to something actually you said, because I think you, you were talking or unpacking it a little bit, but you said um, meaningful progress versus the coach who's almost forcing the stick forward too fast. And you had mentioned uh, like an athlete there, you're going to jump from JV to varsity and the challenge goes up. I, I'm curious what the what meaningful, what like the definitions and, and um, little sub points of meaningful progress are. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So that's mostly about um, mastery as a motivator, right? And mastery, uh, we have there are five major intrinsic motivators: curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. They're designed to be cultivated in an order. When I say designed, I mean evolution designed human bodies to work a certain way, and evolution designed the intrinsic motivation system be called you can cultivate them in any order whatsoever but there's an order that works best curiosity is designed to be built into passion once you have passion if you can attach that to something outside of yourself is often that massively transformative purpose right we talked about earlier uh you get purpose uh once you have purpose the system wants autonomy freedom to pursue that purpose and then once you have the freedom to pursue your purpose, system wants mastery, which are the skills to pursue that purpose well. And when you say meaning, uh, meaningful progress towards meaningful goals, that literally neurobiologically means progress where you're getting regular access to dopamine and regular access to flow. Um, progress is often me- is measured in the brain and dopamine, right? Little, little rewards. This is why when you have a clear goals list, cross everything every time you do something you have to cross it off your list otherwise it's not doing its job you're not getting the dopamine of oh i accomplished that you literally get more dopamine when you cross it off the list and it's done um then just set it and forget it kind of thing um a and b flow i this is uh work uh i really looked at in a book i called i wrote called west of jesus um prior to rise of superman but I spent a long time looking at the question of why do people believe things? What is meaning? And, and there are a lot of different answers to the question, but one of the big answers is when an experience produces flow, we tend to say that is a meaningful experience, right? So flow is partially, at least parts of 
why we believe things, what meaningful means. And when you score, when you look for people who score sort of off the charts for overall well-being, life satisfaction, meaning and purpose, they're always the people with the most flow in their lives. And uh, this is a very, these are well-established facts in positive psychology, really well-established facts. Um, so te- you're technically, I mean, and to take it one level deeper, right? You're tactically talking about dopamine plus some other reward chemicals and possibly some other activity in the brain that is actual meaningful progress towards meaningful goals. But it just basically means we like the little wins. Little The human brain loves stacking little win on top of little win on top of little win. That feels like that's momentum, right? That's what we call, term momentum. And um, it's one of our absolute favorite feelings. Yeah, one of the the training systems um, that's I think it's really popular in high school, but it's like bigger, faster, stronger is the name. And they, I, one of the things that they had going for them was they had any given day you could have different ways to set like a PR. Maybe you set a three rep max PR, a ten rep max PR. It's like they always had a way to somehow you're walking out of there with some sort of personal best. And I've heard of elite power coach or powerlifting coaches, uh, Louis Simmons who's not too far from here over in Columbus has said like, I, I've heard this, not himself, but like make every day like a good day somehow. Like it's. Yeah. I think that I well, one of the, one, so the reason the challenge skills balance is so damn tricky in sport is first of all, what the hell do you mean by challenge and skills? Right. And when, and when psychologists have spent a really long time, like 30 years trying to answer this question and the, there's a long, there's like eight things that actually make it up. And here's, here's something that's shocking. Um, and this is especially among, uh, elite athletes, um, not even like world-class, but just elite athletes and above. Um, when you say challenge and skills, because as we know, the farther up you get talent becomes more and more equal. Right. And so advantages are, are much thinner at the elite level. Confidence is 81% of what we mean by challenge and skills. Um, at elite level, when you're dealing with elite level athletic talent. Um, so confidence is a huge factor there, but so is cultural background, ability to delay gratification, optimism. There's a bunch of other factors that come that go into it, but same with energy level. So what is slightly outside your skill set today, right? Totally depends on how much sleep you got last night, what kind of meals you recently had, how well are you processing nutrition? Right? How's your hydration? There's a bunch of physical stuff, you know, about the current moment that go into it. So um, we know, for example, um, this is this is an interesting thing. A bunch of years ago, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the Godfather of Flow Psychology, and a Google mathematician sat down. They tried to put a number on what's the actual balance between challenges and skills. Can we put a number on it? And they did a back of the envelope calculation that was not ever meant to be taken seriously. And they came up with 4% that we maximize the amount of flow when the challenge is 4% greater than our skill set. And we took that number and ran all kinds of experiments with it. The vast majority of them with athletes, because it's easier to qualify 4% in athletics than almost any place else. And some of it was ridiculous. You know, you can't like if you're strength training, you can't make today's workout 4% harder than yesterday's workout because by the end of the week, you're oh like, you right. Like if that was the case, fantastic. We would all get really, really, really strong, really fast. So um, 
the gradient scale had to change for certain things. But um, one of the things that we discovered, and this was, was in studying mountain bikers, we were looking at, uh, because you can measure every jump on a DH mountain bike hill, and you can go to people and say, what, like, what jumps are you comfortable jumping and which ones don't you jump and what, right? Like we could actually put numbers on it. And um, I don't think this was a real, we never published this because I still don't think it's a real experiment. I don't think the data is strict enough to be anything more than like, it's better than an anecdote, less than a real study. But what we learned is this. So normally in athletics, this isn't always the case, but this is very common. You come into a season, whatever your sport, and you get a bunch of flow early on. Happens in most people. And usually what happens is you'll drop into flow and you'll get a version of you. You'll see a version of yourself that like, it'll take you a couple months to be able to do all the stuff you just did in flow as an athlete without the flow, right? And then you have more flow states and you level, you get a new threshold and you level up again. And that's kind of standard athletic progression as you automize skills and bring them together and how they come together and oh new flow state and this is not to say you won't have micro flow states along the way but the deep powerful flow states you tend to happen start of the season and then towards the end of the season right that that's most people's experience if you stayed if we kept athletes in that four percent sweet spot every day they got better access to flow over time um they're micro flow states started to move a little closer towards macro flow states. So they got into deeper states of flow and they didn't plateau. They kept getting into flow and they kept, there was continual progress throughout the season rather than, you know, it start and stop, start and stop based on plateaus. And we thought that was really neat. And in talking to most of the athletes we were working with who were, you know, either ex pros, semi pros, wannabe pros, like, you know, high caliber riders, all of them said that mostly they found they were dialing down, not dialing up to stay in that sweet spot. They found that under normal conditions, they would push harder than that 4% sweet spot. And um, we were asking, asking them to back off things a little bit more than they were used to. And that was the most shocking thing. And of course, by backing off things, what ended up happening is they got more flow. And once they dropped into flow, then they would do those harder things without, with much less fuss and much less drama. So you, they ended up going farther, faster over time, but the daily experience was less, not more. So when we started this conversation and you said, having a crevasse in the middle of the tennis court is going to make a big difference. The reason I was like, no, 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 is this. Because actually, you know, you would never have a giant crevasse in the middle of the tennis court out of nowhere. You'd have the one-foot crevasse and then the two-foot crevasse and the yeah. three. And right by the time you had the giant crevasse in the middle of the tennis court, it was going to be just the thing that was next. Right. And that's my point. It doesn't look like a giant life threatening cravat, even if it is, um, because the best athletes are staying in that that sweet spot. And um, to put a final point on this one, one of the craziest action sport feats ever conducted in history, I read about in Rise, is when Alex Honnold free soloed Half Dome. Right. Uh, we also free solo the movie where he did um, 
El Cap, that was amazing and maybe a bigger feat. But the thing about Half Dome is he free soloed it in 2012, right? No ropes. If he falls, he's going to die. Most climbers take about a day and a half to climb Half Dome. That's right. And they bring portal edges. They sleep on the side of the wall. They come in pairs and teams. Alex Free sold Half Dome in an hour and 22 minutes in 2012. It's the rough equivalent of running like a four-minute mile in 37 seconds. It's so freaking crazy as an athletic feat. It's often people often point to it and say, yeah, this may, you know, this is in the running for the single greatest feat in action towards history. Um, and certainly up there. And if you ask Alex about it, he'll how did you do this, Alex? And he'll tell you, um, or at least he did at the time. Um, it was 4% plus 4% plus 4% plus 4% plus 4% day after day, week after week, year after year. Because that is, we get the farthest if we get regular access to flow as athletes. And that's how we maximize flow. And for most elite athletes, it means a little less, not a little more, right? But it also means a little less with way more consistency, Right. So it's, you're always sort of pushing that much. So you never have down days. You're never not pushing that much. Or as you, this is why this popped in my mind, you started with always find a way to win the day. Always, you gotta, what, wherever you starting from, you gotta figure out what is 4% for me from where I'm starting from, right? It's not, and it changes on a day-to-day basis and it changes on energy levels. And did you, do you have proper robust social support networks? Right. We all know we get in a fight with our spouse, our wife, our partner, our, our coach, our friend, you know, we bring less energy to the situation to what, what comes next focused is harder. We have less in the tank. Um, social support is really important for physical energy levels, really important for athletes. Um, people, I don't think about talk about social support social support enough with athletes, but let me drive this point home because this is really important for every athlete. Whenever the brain makes a, uh, assesses a challenge, right? It makes a, a microsecond risk assessment. It says, you know, how big is this problem? How small is this problem? Is this a challenge or is it a threat? And how much energy should I put into the system and how much anxiety should I put into the system? And part of the brain that calculates that answer is a part of your brain that basically calculates for how robust are your social support networks? How much do your teammates have your back? How much do people love you? How much, if you fall on your face, is somebody going to pick you up, right? So when your brain is assessing how big is this problem in front of me, is it a challenge or is it a threat? I'm just going to determine everything about that challenge skill sweet spot. And are you going to get into flow or are you going to get overwhelmed or not? Do I have robust social support networks around me? I don't mean you have to know millions of people. But you have to have some real relationships in your life. And you like this research shows we try to train people at the Flow Research Collective to have at least two hours of really high quality social support a week. Um, I try to have one high quality conversation with my wife and one high quality conversation with a friend every day. Now, those conversations may be five minutes long if I'm hella busy, right? But there's active listening, there's empathy, there's, you know, all this stuff. Um, and I do it because it, there's a energy, uh, cost to not doing it. So you think I'm too freaking busy to reach out and talk to my best friend. I'm too busy to go talk to my boyfriend 
or blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Or as coaches, coaches often are like, see players hanging out and bullshit and or hanging out with friends doing non-sports things and they come down on it, right? Why aren't you in class? Why aren't you practicing? And the correct answer from the player is I am fucking practicing, right? Like this is important to how I'm going to play because having stronger social ties means I'm safer. I feel safer come game time and it matters. I, I love that. And it, it takes me back to my own uh, experience as a track athlete. And even as a young coach where I, I'll just say young coach where I thought that everything was just the sets and the reps and the workout scheme and the stru- you know, the structure of the work. And the longer I've gone through this and had the opportunity to mentor under very elite level coaches, you just see how good they are at structuring the social structure of the team. Like that is always a priority with those coaches. And I, I think back to my best years as a track and field competitor and it was when, uh, yes, the training was good for sure. But I also had awesome teammates. And we, I remember one day that year, we were just, we were doing our warm up drills for track, just chucking a tennis ball at each other, like wondering if the coach is going to care. Like, does he care? We're, you know, fucking around. And, but that was, that was like really, I look back and that was important, like that kind of thing. And I, I definitely, it's something that I think can't be understated with the total result. And like, I, I like, I just want to take it back to what you said, because I think this is so important is you, you mentioned the 4% every day. And I'm glad you mentioned this with like, okay, can I really do 4% more pushups every day? No, like at some point I, I can't do it. That no, pushups, but. Well, we, so what we, the way it worked with strength stuff is they basically would set like a, a 4% goal over a period of time, right? So, because when, when you're dealing with strength or speed, with individual daily variations that are based on so many damn factors, you can't do it. So you, what you want to set is like process goals or mm-hmm. things, right? So you can't say I'm going to lift 4% more weight um, or maybe even I'm going to do 4% more reps. But like, you know, oftentimes I'll think about it as um, – you know, a normal trip to the gym for me, uh, is, you know, 14, 12 to 14 exercises, you know, three sets of 10 is a standard. Steven goes to the gym and, and, and tosses around iron kind of thing. Um, and depending on like, where do I pick that number is going to be 12 sets of three or, you know, 13 or four, up to 15, 16 is based on what's my energy level coming in and where's that 4% going to be. So I can do that right? I can go harder. I can go longer. I just can't demand 4% strength. Things that I can't control is, is the, is the other thing. Yeah. I've, I've in kind of a similar vein. I, as a coach, I've, I like how you said where you start from, like on the day, cause it fluctuates out of the day. Progress is kind of like the stock market. It kind of goes up and down and up and down in that trend. Well, well the other, and the other thing is, and this is a, this is just a fucking nightmare but it's so true. I just had this experience a couple weeks ago and I was reminded of it again. When you have a really high flow day, like and I had a breakthrough day skiing where, you know, if you learn a new trick or two over the course of a season as a skier, that's a big season, right? You added like two new tricks to your, or three new tricks. You know, I added seven in a day. I've never had a day like that. I was like, I've never learned that. And it was a deep flow, crazy day. And I was with a friend of mine, we were just on fire and both of us did it and it took so much energy to do that, that we didn't get much flow for like, it was like two weeks afterwards. There was so little flow and it felt like I was going backwards, right? Like I'd made so much progress. And that's also 
like that's gonna, you know, I had to, I had to re-level set, um, after that. And that happens too, of course. Yeah. It's one of the reasons it's so damn hard to be a champion, right? Because flow high flow states after high flow states after high flow states, you know, Kobe didn't get to have, you know, 50 game 50, you know, that's why the, the, those streaks of, uh, 50 plus game nights in a row for, for Kobe and for, uh, what's his name? Losing his name who just got traded out of Houston. Um, no, Harden. Harden. Thank you. I uh, had that streak last year and I was like, what's crazy about the streak is not that they're this is that it either they don't need flow to do it, which is a crazy level of skill, right? Or they can generate deeper flow states more in a row for some reason that I can't quite yet figure out, um, which is really interesting. Either way, it's a puzzle. Yeah, you're 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 saying stuff that's like basically it's like oh this would be a whole another podcast that would be awesome to talk about with the, with that and how they manage that because as you're I know with your um your anecdote of you doing all these tricks and you had a great flow day and you were feeling on uh, from I almost, would almost look at that as like the the super open chain end of things even on a real simple chain even someone do at the Olympics um, well I worked with swimming. Uh, and a lot of these swimmers in the Olympics, they'll swim their best time at the Olympics games, and then they might not touch that time again for four more years. It's right. like, and that's a lot, I guess, a simpler skill than crazy tricks, but even simpler yet, an Olympic weightlifter, uh, just a weightlifting, they might not recover and not be able to re- reproduce that for. And so I like how even just taking that to day to day and just looking at more consistency, not overgoing each day, I, it's it's cool to know that that is not only true in just simple day to day training with just barbells, or but also uh, extreme sports and like even these complex oh, yeah. skills. It's it, 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 it doesn't, that's what I mean by the biology is the same. If, I, I always say this to people, nobody wants to believe me. Um, but if you want better peak performance at work, you want to be more, slightly more productive at work and maybe a little more focused at work and a little happy in your life. Or if you want to go after, uh, oh, I want to run my first marathon, a high, hard goal, or you want to be the best marathoner in the history of the world. It's the same toolkit. They don't, the biology doesn't change. Everybody's working with the same tools. There's no special magic sauce at the top. There's better utilization of the tools over time, but there's no, there, I mean, now, of course, every now and again, you get a LeBron James, you get a physical specimen where you're like, okay, that's a genetic thing. Like, that's a guy whose body does stuff that not everybody else's, you know what I mean? Like, the dude's a defensive tackle playing basketball. Um, that's a different thing. Yeah, with the with the dial, I wanted to ask you too this uh, about the dial of flow. Like you had mentioned, like like we don't want to use up too much, or and obviously we want to get there. And I know this will be the last question here because I know our times are out. But like you've spoken on like the dial of flow, and so how do we? What are just some thoughts on managing that? in the course of a session, like, can it get too, like, can we produce oh, too much? Yeah. Too so I, what, so here's, it's a great, great, great question. And I think the answer is this. Um, nobody's, so nobody has looked directly at this at any giant way where I can say, yeah, definitively, this is what the data shows. So we don't, the study to the best of my knowledge has not been done, but what, more and more it seems to seem like is if you have a high flow experience, the issue is less about um, the flow of the game, like, or of the swim meet or of the ski session and 
do you continue to ride or chase that dopamine high afterwards? So I have found, for example, and I do this, whether it's a flow state that I get into while writing or a flow state I get into uh, public speaking or as an athlete, um, there's a period of time that I'm doing the thing and I want flow for that. But afterwards, I will go out of my way to pull myself out of flow. When you're on the back end of it, because you have you still have dopamine and norepinephrine in your system, thoughts are spiraling. One lead idea is leading to the next, is leading to the next. That's right, dopamine and norepinephrine, and you can feel it. And I try to cut it off, and I'll, so I'll do things. I'll 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 do things that will actually uh, immediately into a long hot sauna, Epsom salt bath, um, reading can sometimes break that up. Television this is the only time I think television is good. Um, on the back end of a flow state, television like will pull you out of flow really pretty damn fast. Um, it's a it's a non-flow experience, and um, even though it feels engaging, but it will pull you out of flow, and it won't burn out all that neurochemistry. The problem is less about that, or you know, the big problem that you see in action sports is the opposite end is people like a couple of years ago there were all these deaths on the pro surf tour from people from speed. Right, and what's happening is surfing is packed with flow triggers, very high flow activity, and especially at the elite level, it's really hard to win without a lot of flow in the equation. And what happens afterwards is the athletes don't want to come down. Right, they're super high and they don't want to come down. So not only do they chase the state, right? They'll you'll get a lot of social activity afterwards because there's all that dopamine and that dopamine will like let's keep talking about it and that'll feed it, right? It'll it'll and you'll burn out more dopamine. Um or you'll get people partying, chase trying to chase the state with drugs and alcohol to stay at that at that level. And if both are disasters simply because we have limited amounts of dopamine in the brand. And if you use all of it on all of the norepinephrine, you're, it's going to take a while to replenish, to reboot, to get back to that level. And some of the neurochemicals, serotonin, for example, as we know, you need sunlight. You need certain like vitamins and minerals. And so your diet is going to matter. And like there's refractory recovery periods on the back end of flows, a cycle. And on the back end of a flow state, there's a built-in recovery period. Right. And um, it's useful for certain things. It's not useful for a lot of other things. But uh, the point is that you have to recover on the back of flow states. So this is another thing that athletes, but you asked about burnout with athletes, right? If you're not recovering on the back end of a flow state, you're going to over time lock yourself out of flow and you're going to deny yourself the very thing. So you know, active recovery protocols really matter on the back end of flow because um, it also keeps you from chasing the high of the state if you actually want more flow for athletic performance. And um, the thing that is worth remembering, because it's really hard in that situation to turn that off, right? It's really hard to say, oh, wow, I should... I should shut this, these feelings down. I should shift my state. I should Now I should use a mindfulness respiration practice that calms me down so I can drop out of flow. You don't hear people say that very often, but I always try to remind athletes and, and, and everybody else, it's more fun performing at your very best on the court in flow or skiing. Like That's more fun than the party. Always is, right? 
if you're a serious athlete, you're going to take the peak performance experience over the party, right? Because that's why you got into this in the first place. And so if you, you could chase, I mean, I'm not saying partying is bad. Don't get me wrong. I am one of the first guys who says every now and then, everybody should take a vacation from reality. I'm really, I'm not uh, anti-drug. I'm not anti-drinking. I think the vacations from reality are probably a healthy built-in need and every species on earth has the need to alter their consciousness um this we know this is well-established biology so we like to change state to you know shut things off sometimes and it's helpful um but the high of performing at your best is more fun as a general rule than the high of the party and and that is what you have to keep reminding yourself because the temptation right you have to and the brain, the brain does, the brain will chase the temptation unless you set a different goal and say, Hey, there's more pleasure to be had over here. If you just don't go in that direction for, you know, for a little while. And that tends to be a fairly useful reframe. I really like how this stuff is transferable. It's life, writing, your, your daily life, and then sport. And I, you were talking in your book, uh, which I'll ask you about here in a second, on how I'll always remember this. How I think it was Hemingway who would just leave like the sentence hanging. Like he would find the peak spot of his work, or maybe it was a different author. He would find the peak spot of his work and then just yeah, leave. Yeah, it's so it's uh, the idea is to maximize flow in writing. Um, one of these is quit while you're most excited. Um, Hemingway talked about it. Uh, I learned it from David Garcia Marquez. Um, is, is where I heard about it. Um, a lot of different people have used it for a long time. Um, yeah, and so I know uh, track coach Tony Heller talked about leaving athletes wanting more and, and cutting yeah. out sprints, and that just totally fits in. Um, and I, so I know time is limited here, so I know, and we've talked about your book, The Art of Impossible. Would you mind just sharing about that briefly and before we get on? Yeah, the, the Art of Impossible is, I mean, it's 30 years uh, spent time studying peak performance and um, it's the first how-to I've ever written about flow. It's a peak performance primer. It's the full suite. It's motivation skills, learning skills, creativity skills, and flow skills is, is sort of the suite. But it, um, it's a book that I wrote for anybody interested in kind of really leveling up their game and going after higher, harder challenges. And the point of the book is that we humans are literally biologically designed to go after these challenges. We're designed to go big. And it turns out not going big is bad for us, which is interesting. Um, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, but that's what the book is. It's a, it's a how-to peak performance primer. I've, read, um, I've written a lot of books about peak performance over the years, but I've never put it together. Um, it took you know 30 years to figure out how does all this stuff work together? What's the order? What's the sequence? How does the biology work? How do we get farther faster? But um, So that's what The Art of Impossible is. Yeah, it was an awesome book. So everyone listening, make sure you guys check it out. I've had an opportunity. Yeah, you can find it anywhere, Amazon and whatnot. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. That wraps up another show. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.